Hey, welcome to Get to Know an Average Joe. Because sometimes when you stop to ask a few questions, you learn incredible things about people. I don't want to sound so like holier than thou, but it has changed me in profound ways. I am not the same person I was. My children, they speak Finnish, Spanish, English. My uh, sister's uh, kids uh, speak Arabian, Spanish, and English. So, so you see, it's a... It's so a, dinner with the Khalees is like, you know, dinner with the world. <laughs> it's noisy, I can tell you. <laughs> I hoped that as we grew older, that as adult women, we would hopefully become friends and be able to talk about some of our childhood challenges. I'm your host, Dodie Axelson. Reach me at DodieX on Twitter and let me know what you think of these conversations. So tie up your walking shoes, grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's get to know an average Joe. Please meet Juan Navas, a young man living in Stockholm, Sweden, but with some American roots, some German roots, and a name that reveals even more international roots. Well, when I'm a little tanner, I, I do look Latin, but, um, well, my name is the same as my father's and the same as his father, and my dad is originally from Puerto Rico, and his family is originally from Spain. They're of the name Juan. But, uh, but my dad's more American, I would say. He grew up in New York, and my mom's German, which probably is the pale pigmentation. And the light eyes. And the light eyes, yeah. I was born in Munich and lived in Munich until I was eight, and then we moved to the States, and I basically grew up to a suburb of Washington, D.C., called Springfield. <laughs> you and Bart, I guess. Well, I'm, there's always been a lot of uh, talk about which Springfield is, in, is on The Simpsons, but I, think, I, I don't think it was Springfield, Virginia, no. Right now, geographically, you are in Stockholm, Sweden. So what was the crossroad that brought you here? First of all, I, I want to say that I came here in 1997 to study for half a year. It is now 2016. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would live in Sweden for this long. But the crossroads happened in the mid-90s when I was still in high school. And I had the great privilege of meeting Swedes in my high school who um, invited me to come to Sweden. The first time I came to Sweden was in the summer of 94, and people who live here still talk about the summer of 94 because it was apparently one of the best summers ever. Great weather, sunshine, and I really felt very comfortable and at home in Sweden. And, and now- how, how did your parents react? Because of course, they're, they've both made long journeys in their lives, and when you said, okay, not only am, am I going to Sweden, but six months later, by the way, I'm not coming back, the reaction was what? Well, six months later, I had decided I would stay another six months. And um, the reaction was, okay, we understand. So I would study another six months in Sweden. And then after that year, I decided I would finish my studies in Sweden. And I think my parents were still, okay, um, why not, if that's what you want to do? Plus, it was much cheaper to study in Sweden because there's there's no tuition fees. Uh, so I think my dad was probably really happy that all of a sudden he's just, you know, saved a couple of hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> So, um, but I think it really kind of maybe hit when, when I was doing my last year at university and I had just gotten the job, a job at Swedish radio and I said, well, I'm going to take this job. And then I think it started to sink in that maybe I'm staying a lot longer, but my parents have always been very supportive. And I think it's because they both have, you know, lived around the world and done different things and made their choices. And they always said I had to make my choice. So the career started in radio, ended up in public relations. Was that what, what little Juan Navas figured for himself? 
No, no. I don't think any child is growing up thinking I'm going to work in, you know, public relations. Oh, radio? Radio, yeah. I mean, I... I don't know if I ever wanted to work in radio. I remember when I was little, I used to make tapes, though, where I would talk into, you know, the, the, the recorder, which, you know, cassette tapes, which probably no one knows what they look like anymore. But I would do my own little, you know, I would talk into them, and I remember I would, like, hold up the recorder to the television to get music because I needed to have music in there, too. And And what was your show? I don't know. I think when I was younger, I really, I never aspired to be a doctor or a fireman. I like traveling, and so I always knew that I wanted to do a lot of that when I was young. And when I started getting older, my goal was maybe to become a diplomat. And in a way, maybe I am a diplomat working with public relations. But um, I really don't remember having kind of a dream that I want to be this or I want to be that. When you look back, do you think this actually makes sense for your life? I think in one way it was natural that I would come back to Europe. I don't, I don't know why, maybe because I felt at home here. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. The people we meet in our lives affect us in different ways, and they open new doors for us, and then new doors open after that, and then a window opens. And But the end goal is the same for us all. Which is what? Well, there is only one end goal, isn't there? I mean, I don't know if I want to call it a goal, but I mean, we all just want to be happy and thrive. But in the end, we're all going to die. So hopefully we make, you know, some good choices along the way and that we've enjoyed the one life which we know of that we have. So now we've come to the really deep stuff and the most recent crossroads that I think you went through. My stomach and my whole in internal system has gone through a major change. Um, and that is the simple fact that I donated part of my liver to my mother uh, in February of 2015. So let's visit that in detail. But first of all, today you've just returned from the hospital. So one year later, you're still being monitored, right? Do you mind sharing how did that checkup go and what are you thinking today when where you are in this process? I do go for regular checkups. Usually it's just simple blood tests to see that everything is functioning. And my liver is functioning completely normal, which is really great. Um, but there And it's are, full size again, yes? It, well, it's grown almost to the full size, 90-something percent. Um, it's, it doesn't have exactly the same capacity as it did, I'm, but it does physically grow. But like all major surgery, uh, which this was, you know, there are sometimes smaller complications. And, um, and I'm, I'm having digestive issues, which uh, I think you could... Are, are audible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and which we're looking into. And hopefully we'll find out what the solution is and what the problem actually is. So let's go to the beginning then. You got a phone call. Who was it who called and, and what did you learn? Well, a few years ago, I did speak to my mom and dad. And well, I was told that, that mom wasn't doing so well, that her, her liver wasn't functioning as properly as it should. And things turned rather suddenly when, when my mom called me and told me that she was now officially on a, on a donor list. And she's in Springfield, Virginia at this point, and you are in Stockholm, Sweden. Yes, exactly. And then, of course, the, the more serious it was getting, the more interested I was getting in, okay, what are the solutions to this? Because all I've ever known is that, yes, you can do a transplant. I know I know you can do a kidney transplant because uh, we have two of them. But usually the, per the other person, ha a person has to be deceased to give major organs Important. like the heart and the liver. So I started looking up stuff, and, and I, I found that around the world um, they were doing liver transplants by taking part of 
a living person's liver and putting it into the sick person. And I found this quite fascinating. So I called my mom up and I asked her if she had heard about this. And she had said, yes, I've, I've known about this for a while. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And she said, well, there was no reason to tell you because I'd never let you do that. And I said, okay, but, um, but maybe it would be nice to be informed and maybe it's a decision I also should, you know, be able to make. No, well, that was the end of the conversation. Things started to get a little worse again, and I called the University of Maryland Hospital in Baltimore, which is uh, one of the best, um, I would say, transplant centers in the United States. And, and I managed to get a hold of not what, well, what happens when you, when you go through this, you get a coordinator. So my mom had one coordinator, and I wasn't allowed to speak to my mom's coordinator because no one's allowed to influence my decision. So I was automatically assigned my own coordinator, who I spoke with, we did a lot of uh, talking via email because of the time difference and also of the strange reason that she was not able to make an international call. It turned out that I was a suitable candidate and I had to do some blood tests here. The main blood test was, am I a match blood type? And I was. And then it was decided that, okay, well, if you want to continue with this, you can, and we invite you to come to Baltimore. So I um, took a flight to Washington and met with the hospital team and took a lot of tests, and yes, and then the wait began to see if I would be a, a match. Um, at the same time, having this conversation with my parents, you know, should we do this, should we not? They, so they, the blood type matched, but then they still don't know if the organs will match, or why are there more tests to match? Well, I mean, there are, there, there are a lot of different tests, and I, I don't know all the technicalities. I, I actually took a picture of all the blood they took, which was I've never seen so much. But what they're, what they're looking for is, is everything from, am I a healthy person? Am I a healthy individual? Will my body be able to handle this? They also look for other things. And do I have cancer? Do I have other diseases? And other other tests to see if I'm com- compatible. So this was what month of what year? This was in November 2014 when I flew to the States. And then did you stay in the States or did you come back to Sweden? What happened next? I was in the States for a little over a week uh, doing these tests. I also, it's also, I should mention that I did also have to meet a social worker. And I also had to meet the head of the surgical team um, because as much as a person wants to do something, you know, if my health isn't up to it or if my, my psychological state isn't up to it, uh, you, you will be de- denied. And a lot of, a lot of personal questions uh, about handling stuff. They also want to make sure that I'm not being forced to do this because there have been situations where people have been forced to do it. There are situations where people are paid to do it, and they have to make sure that's not happening because it's against the law. So what were you feeling? How did you describe to the social worker? I mean, because, of course, your worry for your mother must have been an overwhelming emotion. It's it's hard to answer that question in just a few lines because, I mean, we did sit for over a good hour, and um, and there were, were many interesting questions. I, I think my way to handle a lot of serious issues is to, to have a little bit of humor. And I remember one of the questions was, do I owe my mother money? And I laughed and said, well, yes, of course I probably owe her money. I mean, I've been her son for 30-something years, you know. Um, So, yeah, but that's not a factor here because I'm not paying anything back. Um, But they wanted to know why I was doing it. And, And I said, well, why wouldn't I? It's my mother. I love her. And I want her to be around. So it wasn't more complicated than that in my mind. How did your parents come around? Because, I mean, your mother was at first unwilling, but eventually obviously agreed. Uh, And your dad's reaction was what? He wasn't comfortable with me doing it. 
And, and of course I understand that because I'm an only child and not only did this mean that his wife would be in one operating room, but his only child would be in the other operating room. And I think I realized that maybe the night before the operation, how much it affected him. I, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And with all surgery, there are risks. And with this surgery, there were more risks. And it could have meant worst case scenario that both my mother and I could have passed away. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine what he went through. But he thought I was brave and he knew I would do anything for my mother, just like my mother would probably do anything for me. And and he came around. And my mom came around, basically, I think, in the end, because she realized I was going to go through with this anyway, so she might as well be on board. And you both came out with the best-case scenario, because your mom today is feeling fine. You're doing fine. How has this changed you? I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound so, like, holier than thou, but it has changed me in profound ways. I am not the same person I was. And, and I think it's a lot of the little things that it have changed I prioritize things in a very different way. I, pri- I prioritize the people in my life that I care for more. I no longer have an ambition or a goal to have as many people like me as possible. I can be pretty straightforward now in a way that I couldn't be before the surgery. I have looked at my life in a different way, realizing that if I'm not happy doing something, I have to change it. I have to change it. No one's going to change something for me. I don't take bullshit anymore because I don't have time for that. Because it has taught me that life is very precious. And when you're going into this and you've had to write a will and you know be prepared for the worst outcome and when you fly out of Sweden you're literally saying goodbye to people and you're not 100% sure you're going to see them again. At the same time while I say I don't have a desire for everyone to like me, the people who are closest in my life, one thing that I make sure of is that when I leave them they know I care for them. Even if I've had an argument with them, I don't want anything left unsaid, because you never know. Juan is now doing fine, working full-time, still in Stockholm, and close as ever to his mom and dad. Thanks for listening to Juan's story. Our next guest will be the second voice you heard in our intro. It's Camilo Caliz, a transplanted Colombian I got to meet while working in Mexico. You felt it. You felt it in the atmosphere and everything. It was, it was, it was quite chaotic. A war between the government and, and the cartel groups of, of, of cocaine. So it was, it was uncomfortable for people in general. I hope you'll join me for another edition of Get to Know an Average Joe. And now, if you'll excuse me.